This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Board & Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Board & Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled A Seattle Type. On average, we read 10,000 words a day, and every one of those words is made up of letters that were designed meticulously, line by line. These designs are called typefaces, and every typeface has a unique history. As Seattle grows and new buildings are built around us, they sometimes literally erase the signs of our past. These signs told us where we were, where we ate, where we drove, and in a lot of ways, where we've been as a city. As people from outside Seattle make a home here, has the way we visualize our words and messages changed? Can the typefaces we choose for our signage communicate a message about our history or Seattle's future? To help us answer that question and more, we're joined by Andrea Lexen, a professor of graphic design at Cornish College of the Arts here in Seattle. Andrea, thanks for making the time to sit and chat with us. Thanks for having me. So everybody gets the same treatment up front. I'm going to ask you how long you've been in Seattle and what neighborhood you live in here. I've been in Seattle my whole life. I currently live in Ballard, but I grew up north in Alderwood and then later moved to Kenmore and then Wallingford until the last five years and I've been in Ballard. Is there a favorite neighborhood of those? Oh, I'm totally smitten with Ballard. <laughs> she was just honing in, working her way closer. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually you two live pretty close to each other. Probably. Yeah. yeah. I'm Raina and old Ballard. You're actually one of the few guests we've had that were native Seattleites. I've been really excited about that, actually. Since you're a native Seattleite, what has your experience been like watching the city change and evolve as all these new people arrive and make everything crazy? Oh, I think it has a lot of pros and cons. Um, I think the city maybe has some more things to offer because we do have a larger population and things are changing and needs are changing. But also as somebody who's not on an Amazon paycheck and an artist, uh, it is very difficult to try to stay in the city that I've grown up in. So a lot of that has been sad. If you saw KUOW just recently had this event. Did you guys see this? That it was this event you could go to as a debate where they had uh, one side arguing that Amazon is good for Seattle and the other side arguing that it wasn't. And it like sold out a theater. It was really, really interesting. Well, I think it's been such a hot topic because it really is affecting our city. And since Amazon is so central, it really changes our city more than, you know, Microsoft going in on the east side or Boeing, you know, being up north or south. It, I think it's just changed so rapidly because of that central location. Do you find it more pronounced visually or more pronounced in a, a feel? Like when you're walking on the street or where you're, when you're in a restaurant or a bar, does it feel different? Or is it when you look around and see the visual change, what, what pops more for you? Well, I work in South Lake Union, and so... I can feel it walking out of, you know, the Cornish doors. So definitely feel it. But it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that when I walked around in South Lake Union, it was all warehouses. It's interesting. One of my students, a current project with my sophomores is that they, they learn about branding. And we do a neighborhood project where they choose a neighborhood and they design a logo identity and a brand system for that neighborhood. And so one of my students chose South Lake Union 
And we had a lot of really interesting conversations around what does that logo mark look like? What typeface represents South Lake Union? How do we represent South Lake Union with the center of wooden boats and with the tech industry that's booming? Where did you end up in that conversation? I mean, she ended up with a, a logo that tried to show the aesthetic of a tech industry with the water kind of infused into it through color palette more than anything else. But it is a very interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, I like that. Because if you think about but the, the idea of water in the tech industry, because they, this sounds awkward, but you know, if you spill your water all over your tech product, it's ruined, right? And so you, know, you have this, this conflict, you know, in the, and there's that same conflict with bringing tech into the city. I mean, we have deep tech roots, but there is this kind of head-to-head of, of the tech culture with some of our old maritime roots that are finding it hard to stay in the city with all the higher rights and everything that are coming with the tech industries being much more present. And so if there's a way to bring those two together, there's a you know some nuance in there that might be helpful. That's an interesting analogy. I'm sure we have many listeners just wanting to say something. <laughs> Actually, one of my colleagues just had an article published a few days ago, Natalia Ilian, who I work with at Cornish, um, and she wrote a piece on Amazon and how it's changed the city and her perspective as a professor who's been at Cornish for a while. The professors and the students who are living further and further away from campus and how they used to live, you know, on Queen Anne, but now they're pretty far south and, you know, it really does affect everybody. I think there are some really positive movements going on though. I know you had Monica Guzman on the show not too long ago and she's created this, you know, kind of underground movement of trying to really connect people and build community. And I think there's some other interesting things going on in the city too. I'm a part of a group called Type Thursday that focuses on typography and we've had, you know, 50 people coming the last few months. We just started it in October and people are just really interested in building community and talking about typography and design. And I wonder if some of those things wouldn't happen in the same way if people weren't feeling this big pull to, you know, want that community and try to find it. It does seem to make us all focus more on what makes Seattle special. I know we've spent a lot of time on the show actually trying to hone in on like, what is the, the thing, the kernel, the, the source of what makes it special here? Why should we even have the debate? Why is the debate even happening? A lot of cities, this never, this never happens. This, this kind of conversation just doesn't occur to people to have. It's just like the city changes and then they look back 30 years ago like, huh, gee whiz, things are different now. Well, anyway, you mentioned the type design event. So you, you are a professor of graphic design, but you specialize in typeface design. How did that specialization come about? Did you just like come out of the crib? You're just like design, <laughs> design type. No, I've always loved typography. Um, but when I came back from my master's degree in Scotland over a decade ago, I was offered some courses to teach at Seattle Pacific University. And so I taught for a few years, just basic graphic design courses, but then they offered me an intro to typography class. And I thought, well, that's great. I love type. I know type. And I started teaching it and realized what a rabbit hole I'd gotten into. It's, <laughs> it's like this whole specialized field that I had no idea had so much detail and so much depth to it. And so I started going to typography conferences and I took my first type design class from Sumner Stone, who's a well-known type designer. And that was maybe in 2010. And 
it was a four hour class, but I just was in love with type. And so I just couldn't help but keep going down that road. So I started teaching advanced typography classes and made a couple typefaces and started going to North American typography conferences and international conferences and built a great community of people in that world and also just really love the detail-oriented part of type design that's a little bit kind of further out than graphic design. Do you, I know in architecture, early on people are introduced to it through, oh, there was this one building I saw or that my favorite look is this look. Is it like that for typefaces? Do you have go-to typefaces that are, these are my favorite three typefaces and I want to use them all the time or is it, or do they, are they more tools in a toolbox for you to create an overall look? I think every designer has some typefaces that they particularly love using. We invest in a few, you know, typefaces that have very large families, so we have a lot to choose from. So, you know, something that has an extended, regular, and condensed versions or, you know, bold, light, regular. The more we have, the more we can enjoy using that to build hierarchy and design. So, I don't know. I have some that I use, but I think my my normal answer is that it depends on the project and finding the right typeface for that project is the most important part. But I definitely have, you know, some of my go-tos like Adobe Garamond Pro is just a classic, great, legible body text typeface. I really like for kind of a more casual, friendly typeface. I like Chaparral by Carol Twombly. And there are a lot of great sans serif typefaces out there. Minus one of them, <laughs> i allowed to say that, <laughs> but not for body type. We'll so um, I don't know. I don't know if we get into a conversation about Helvetica or not. <laughs> what about you, Rachel? You have sort of a background in, in design and graphic design as well. Do you have any go-tos? Oh, my gosh. No, I, I almost would say the same thing that you did in that it's it's I don't think I do have any favorites because it always is conditional on what you're doing uh, that one person could possibly be good for everybody else right yeah <laughs> that's really that's actually a really interesting metaphor yeah <laughs> I was trying to think about like clothing I was like well what's my favorite jacket to wear to this event well is, is it how is cold is it gonna be is it gonna be raining like uh, it's all contextual yeah in architectural design I feel like if you leave us to our devices our stuff will end up looking a certain way even if it's subconscious there's an aesthetic that just got baked in at a certain point does that not happen in graphic design I disagree with you though about architectural design well, so, okay, some architects, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'm drinking heavily. But I want to <laughs> believe that an architect is is paying attention to the context of where they are putting whatever it is that they right. are designing, the, the building, the space, all of that stuff, and that mm -hmm. they are cognizant of what the environment is around it and how it plays mm -hmm. a role in what the architect does in the situation and what the relationship is with their neighbors and the inhabitants and all of this stuff, the experience of it. And, and it's a matter of scale, I think, with all types of design. And I actually wanted to ask you that, Andrea, about, about it, because, for example, in architecture school, I took an elective studio, which was furniture design, and it wasn't required, but it was so amazing to get a... Um, it was like it reset my brain for the scale of things I needed to pay attention to. And typography is such a, the scale is even smaller, I feel like, of the details of the nuances that you need to be aware of. And then you have to deal with changes of scale 
in a much more obvious way, I guess, than we have to, we, you know, it's not like our buildings just get larger sometimes. Sometimes people are going to have like a mini. It feels that way sometimes. <laughs> you know, if, if somebody wants a tiny house, it's not like we just scale it up for the big mansion. Sure it feels different. that way in Salt Lake Union. <laughs> 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 you know, so. I feel like there's, a, there's an art opening in there somewhere. <laughs> Probably. Has the attention to detail that you have to put into designing something so specific as you know, the curve of a letter in a typeface, does it affect the other things that you designed? Yeah, because people won't take me to dinner anymore because I analyze the menu. <laughs> 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 um, no, it definitely has changed my design for the better because when you're designing type, you have to dissect those curves, those Bezier curves, so so critically that it develops your eye in a in a much tighter way. And so, if I'm designing a logo now. I bring it into my type design software program and I design it in there because the curves are going to look so much better. It definitely has changed my eye in a good way. But of course, I'm going to be more critical of everything I see. So you may not want to walk down the road with me or take me to a restaurant because I will analyze everything. Well, same with architects. You're walking down the road and looking at buildings. So I think we're all a bit ruined in our own fields. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's funny. It adds more magic in some way and it takes some away on the other end. It's like we can appreciate an amazing example of what we design, but the bar for that seems to get higher and higher. That's my partner and I have sort of, I was going to say a bingo, but it's not really like bingo because it's like when we drive around, go place to place, we'll, you know, if we see a certain typeface, we're like, oh, there it is. Note that I'm gesturing to point. I forget we're not on film here, I guess. <laughs> There's been lots of hand signals the last couple of episodes. We point things out. like images of our hand signals <laughs> to go along with this as it plays or something. <laughs> and it's, sometimes it's hard once you put your finger on a particular typeface that you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I can't believe they're using that. Once you start to notice all the types of companies that will be attracted to that one, then it, then you'll see it everywhere. I also think, though, all of these different fields in design, you've got architecture and graphic design and typography and even fine art, and they all have some of the same basic rules about contrast and hierarchy and color palette. And, and so, I mean, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, I love architecture because it's so closely related to design, except that I don't know anything about it. So I'm always incessantly asking questions of of my architect friends, (laughs) but it is fun because they are so closely related in so many ways. I mean, you understand type in a way that someone else might not understand it. Who's not in a design field at all. So speaking about driving around town, looking at, looking at typefaces, you did something pretty cool not too long ago where you participated or sort of arranged a ghost sign tour. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how it came about and what did you look at? What is a ghost sign? So the National Typography Conference TypeCon came to Seattle two summers ago. And instead of applying to talk at the forum, I decided to do a special event, which is more my style. And I decided to do this typography pub crawl. I wanted to (laughs) show people my city and some of the old type and ghost signs painting around town while incorporating some of the microbrews since people are out of town I thought they might enjoy that so I decided to focus my walk on Capitol Hill it's mostly down pike and pine ghost signs are old painting signs on the sides of buildings that have been there so long that you can you're seeing them fade over time and so it gives us a glimpse back into history a little bit what used to be there and it's exciting to see what type looked like back then and that it still is around. 
And Capitol Hill has done a great job of keeping a lot of this, those historical buildings with the ghost signs on it. So I crafted this typography walk. It was maybe two and a half hours, starting at Six Arms, which is such an eclectic mm-hmm. little pub there, and then ending at the Elysian Brewery, which is one of the older breweries in Seattle. And people really enjoyed it. I think Seattle is full of artists, and a lot of them are kind of starving artists because I think they've gone into other fields of programming and UX and things that maybe don't feed their soul as much, or maybe it does. But um, it seems like people are kind of fascinated by, I don't know, reflecting back on typographic history. And also, it was a great way for me to learn a lot about Seattle history. I was born here, but I've never really researched Capitol Hill. So learning about Seattle's auto row, why the windows look the way they do, and why the typography works in the way it does was really fun to be looking through the Seattle architecture archives and calling up design firms and architects that worked on buildings and some of the developers and getting stories about all these different go signs. And some people were super excited and helpful and some people thought I was totally crazy. But it was a really fun process. So I did it for a group of 20 at that conference. And then I've done it for my students the last couple of years. I take them up with minus the alcohol. Um, I take them on the tour and walk around Seattle. (laughs) Don't get me fired now. (laughs) Uh, What were some of the buildings you looked into? I know there are some pretty, because I lived down there when I first moved to Seattle. Lived in the Pike Motor Works building. And it has that, that semicircular courtyard that I think used to be a BMW. Yeah. And those, each of those bays were one of the mechanics bays or no? You're probably right. And I didn't study that building because the typography yeah. was new. And right. so <laughs> I, there wasn't a lot of interesting information on it. typography is worthless. <laughs> um, some of my favorite spots are the Baker Linen Building on 11th and I think Pike is a great building. And I believe Dunn and Hobbs, the developer, mm-hmm. I believe that their offices are in that building as well. And they've done a great job of preserving a lot of these historical buildings and preserving the type. That was fun to kind of research and find how many buildings they kind of saved on Capitol Hill. Was there one sign you saw when you were out hunting ghost signs that like captured your heart? Like that was that that's the sign. That's a beautiful one because it's so intact uh-huh. still. There are some other great ones down close to Pioneer Square, mm-hmm. like the big one with the ferry on it. And I can't remember what what street that's on. But all of this kind of correlates with another thing that you've done, which is sort of the intersection of architecture and typography. Painted typography fades, right? But typography is in buildings in other ways. And you are behind the font Bemis. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? So when I was given the uh, advanced typography course to teach at Seattle Pacific University, I decided I wanted to to teach type design and learn more myself. And so I, um, with my students, we did a project where we we worked from found type somewhere in Seattle, older found type, and we created um, just a capital full uppercase alphabet. And so I did, um, I designed Bemis alongside my students and got critiqued and came out of that class with my first full alphabet. I mean, I just love those letter forms. So after that class ended and it had given me like a great goal, I finished off the other letter forms. It's about 256 characters that go into a very basic typeface that includes diacritics and punctuation and mathematical symbols. And, and so I finished that off and then I published it. So that's my first published typeface. And that's how I met Monica Guzman, who was on your show earlier. She thought it was really interesting, this historical, we call it a historical revival, a typeface that existed purely in the inscription on this uh, brick facade of the building. 
and not digitally. So she thought that was interesting and wrote an article in the Seattle Times about it. And so that was really fun. I literally have that quote written down here and I font revival script from a non-digital past made part of our technological present. I, I yeah. read that and I thought it was such a cool idea because I I spent a lot of time being obsessed about technological presence and, 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 and then I can just spend you know, an entire day and more poking around an antique shop or a thrift store and all these things. And I love when I get to bring these two things together. And so that concept just excites me. There are some type design firms that specialize strictly in revivals. And for those of us who are excited about the past and what's been done and what we can learn from, it's, yeah, it can be really exciting to do that. And like this typeface Bemis, all I had was B-E-M-I-S. And from that aesthetic, I decided what the other characters might look like, but that was all creative as well, even though I had some of these characteristics that I based it off of. So what inspires you to to dip your toe into making a new typeface? There are a lot of different ways to be inspired. I mean, there's the historical reference, or there's just sitting there sketching one day, or if you're designing a project and you see a need for something that you can't find, which seems impossible with hundreds of thousands of typefaces, but it's true that there are still some things that haven't been designed yet, or at least designed well yet. Um, so the second typeface I started working on, I was mentored by a place called the Font Bureau over in Boston, and they mentored me for a year on my second typeface. And I took all my favorite qualities of type and put them into one typeface. <laughs> it was a very fun project. Mm -hmm. And after a year, I realized I had created a pretty big challenge for myself. And so I set it aside and decided to design something that was kind of fun and trendy and would be a shorter project. And that's when I published Nordique, my second published typeface, which has done really well and was a, a fun project on its own. And that, that was inspired by my Scandinavian heritage and the logo that I designed for my business, my graphic design business. So now I'm just going back to that second typeface and trying to see if I can finish that. But I think, I think everybody finds their inspiration for a typeface differently. I have a friend who designs almost all scripts fonts and so she does it all by brush and calligraphy tools and that is always where her inspiration comes from so for me I'm a little bit more digital I can't read my own handwriting <laughs> I use fonts all the time <laughs> and so I don't know I think typeface has been different for me so far between the two typefaces you've referenced uh, Bemis and Nordique if you take the same word and you switch the typeface from one to the other regardless of the nature of the word doesn't change let's say it's the word shoe like well that's a shoe you wouldn't think, not talking in terms of design, that that word can change a whole lot. But you switch the typeface and the feeling that that word evokes is in, not something you can't even argue that it doesn't feel different. And that kind of blows my mind a little bit because the amount of psychology that's rooted in that is, is bonkers. That you can put a serif on it and it feels completely different. You can put little spirals on the end of every single line and it changes it again in your process. Do you start with the feeling you want to evoke? For Nordique, for example, so Bemis, there was an example in the real world and you started from there. But when you're starting from scratch, are you like, I want this typeface to feel this way? Or do you work from geometry and then create a shape and a form and then the feeling that it evokes is the feeling that it evokes? What direction do you go in? Well, I think each one is a little different. So for Nordique, I was creating a Scandinavian aesthetic and... Scandinavia is very modern and rounded. And so that typeface is a geometric sans serif. So I think every typeface is a little bit different. If you're doing a custom typeface for a client, 
you have to really think about what their needs are, right? You know, does it need to be legible? Is it for screen? Is it for print? Is it for, you know, something like the Kindle that has a totally different kind of need? And then you're going to have to build that typeface around those specific needs. For something like Nordique, I decided to kind of take, I wanted to see what would happen if I chose something kind of trendy. You know, it's a, it's a really thin geometric sans serif. So it's, it is trendy. I actually built it for the audience right. to see how it would sell, which is very different than the typeface I built before that, that was just something that I loved and was actually more challenging and more of a masterpiece that might not sell as well because it's not intended as much for a specific market. Although I would say that every typeface I would publish has to have some kind of hook or some something about it that sets it apart from the other typefaces. So for example, Nordique, is a geometric sans serif, but it has these design elements that have a Scandinavian aesthetic to it, flowery ornaments. And so it makes it different than others, where since it's been built from geometry, it looks like a lot of other typefaces. So that sets it apart. And I think what is what makes it actually sell fairly well. I, I, I was reading an article not too long ago about the guy that designed papyrus. And he was like, oh, yeah, I didn't oh, really I need, like, this. he was like, I don't know. I, it was just a thing I did. I didn't really, uh, and now it's everywhere. And I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like, is that, do you worry about that? <laughs> it is the tragedy of a typeface when it becomes free, because then everyone has access to it. And a lot of people don't know how to use a typeface appropriately. So for example, Vinnie Conner, who built the Comic Sans typeface, built it fairly quickly for, I believe it was Microsoft, because th there was a comic strip that was going to come out with Times New Roman in it. And you can imagine that aesthetically, that doesn't make any sense. And he said, please, can we do something that has an aesthetic that works better for comics? And so and he built Comic Sans. Yeah. He, yeah. So but it's been misused. It's been used everywhere for, you know, published novels and 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 logos for classy restaurants. And it's a tragedy. So, no, I just need to make sure that my fonts are always for purchase, right? And then they'll rarely be misused because someone who's going to purchase my font will have a very specific need for it. I think it's amazing, though. So we just talked about Papyrus and Comic Sans. Typefaces that essentially in and of themselves have become memes. You can type anything in either of those typefaces and it's automatically a joke not in a good or bad way but it's just you can't escape that that's incredible it's a, it's a whole different level of infiltration into our culture and mm -hmm. our graphical culture or the cultural zeitgeist of of how we absorb our visual world and it's definitely a conversation topic in the typography community as to what do you give away for free or and what do you sell your typeface for that's affordable for people, but also it's going to be used in an appropriate way mm -hmm. and not poured out. <laughs> no, it's totally going in. That is totally going in. And it's funny, there's no direct correlation to architecture. The worst I can think of is like those McMansion images that you see online, but that's something very specific to typefaces. You could probably argue that in any design field that there are elements that have become, uh, for whatever reason, taken over or appropriated and spread in a way that they have, they've lost their original intended meaning. Yeah, I think this links actually links directly to the whole fonts being free thing. All of a sudden when Photoshop I can't believe it. this is going to date me so badly when Photoshop like came out and all of a sudden like, you know, Adobe products gave you hundreds of fonts. 
there was this moment where the more fonts you used, the better because you could. And there's kind of a similar architectural thing sometimes. We were looking at a certain example of architecture recently that had every type of window you could possibly have all in the same building. It reminded me very much of that. More isn't necessarily better. And just because you can do a thing easily doesn't make it a good idea. Do I get to ask a question? Oh, interesting. Yes, of course. Sure. So as an architect, how do you choose the typeface that goes on your building? Or if you're designing a new building and it has a name and an, maybe a logo in the front of it, do you do you get a say do you get a say in what goes in the front of your building and how that relates to the design of the building? Or do you give that out to a graphic designer to choose? Sometimes the architect is given the option to comment. Sometimes the architect or the architecture office has the ability and staff that creates the typeface in-house or chooses the typeface in-house. And sometimes developer or owner hires someone from the outside. It's really different depending on the type of building. Like a, a multifamily building that has a specific target market is going to have a very specific type of look and feel they want to evoke. A residence might be really, really different. Yeah, but I, I think actually it's very different now in our current time than it used to be. So so back when, say, the Bemis building was under construction and design, oftentimes with those buildings, the name that is physically on the building was either the owner of the building or it was an owner of a building that was also a company that was going to occupy the building. And a lot of times these days, that's not really the case. And so the building is being developed by a company that has their own branding and all of their brand fonts and all this stuff that is going to be occupied by several different businesses. There's less branding on the building itself and more of branding on all of the various occupants that are going to go into the building. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of the time, all of that signage is not as permanent as it used to be. Well, a lot of multifamily buildings have design guidelines for their signage. They, they do, yeah. but they're a company that is occupying the building as opposed to saying, because right. you could then take that sign off and rebrand the building under new ownership right. as opposed to the Bemis building that has been owned by who knows who since whoever was the original owner, right? It's probably somebody that is a totally different And whoever the name. mason was that actually carved, that carved in. it in in 1917, it's still there. That's what was cool is that I found that building because of the typeface on the front but it turned out that it was this historic building that now houses artists and so it's it's full of artist studios mm -hmm. and so it was a fun project to discuss with the people that are in that building i wonder if it's a product of our less permanent world that we have now and that that it's not um any new building that is built right now, it's not assumed that this will be what it is for the length of the life of the building. Even if it wasn't assumed that it would always be this occupant in this building that was constructed, it was there was this value of stamping this building with this name at that time. And so therefore, our design and typography in our city directly relates to what's happening in our city. Right. Right. Comes yeah. full circle. It goes back to this kind of transient community that's in and out that comes here for a job and maybe leaves, but hasn't really put their roots down here. And is here for the job, maybe instead of the community, not always, but sometimes. And maybe our design and our typography is reflecting how wishy-washy or kind of in and out and how we maybe aren't putting our roots down like we used to. Has digital display, public digital display changed type design a lot? You know, now that 
a lot of signage is simply becoming purely digital instead of any sort of physical sign. Is that changing the way you design typefaces? Well, a typeface designed for a digital purpose is definitely designed differently than one for print. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot more typefaces built for digital use. More thought going into the counter spaces and legibility and, and the pixels and the hinting process, which mm -hmm. is another even more geeky field than type design. <laughs> type design is the programming and the technical parts of it, but it's definitely changing type. People ask why there still needs to be new fonts designed, but it's because our technology is changing and we keep needing to respond to the new needs of our society. It's funny, it's, it's conceivable that any typeface you design could be displayed on a massive scale at any moment, depending on the size of the screen. Whereas before it was like, well, I'm creating this this typeface for this particular use and that's it. Is there a, a Pacific Northwest typeface? That's a very interesting question because a couple of years ago, the city was looking for a type designer to create a font for the city of Seattle to be used on their website and in parks around the city. And they chose someone to design that typeface who altered a typeface they'd already created that was a bit anonymous and so if you look at it, you wouldn't really know that it had a Seattle aesthetic, but it did make other people, I think, in the community want to design a typeface with that aesthetic. So I have a friend who put out a typeface last year that had a bit of a Northwest aesthetic, you know, that with references to the Native American tribes and the art. There's a very interesting typeface that my first typography teacher, Juliet Shen, created for the Seed tribe just north of Seattle. Their language was vanishing. Maybe only five people knew the language anymore because it was passed down verbally instead of visually. And there actually wasn't a font that contained all of the characters and diacritics that they needed in order to pass that down visually. And so they hired her to create a typeface with all of the necessary characters. It's this beautiful story. And so now... They have a new typeface. It has an aesthetic of the tribe and it also has all the, the, the functions that it needs. And they created these wood blocks through wood type through Hamilton wood, wood Type Museum. And the children are using these wood blocks to learn their language because it was years ago forbidden for them to learn their language when they were forced to learn English instead. So there's some really beautiful, interesting stories that happen around typefaces. That is so cool. That's really, really cool. A question we sometimes ask our guests, which is more, what? Oh, oh my gosh. I thought you were going to ask uh, a question we sometimes ask our job interview candidates, because I really wanted to ask her that. Ask. So go go for it. Uh, when you're writing a paragraph and you get to the end of a sentence, and there's a period, but then you're going to begin a new sentence, how many spaces do you put? One. Yes. See? Yes. I'm a one spacer. No, I know, but yeah. so and we're from the generation of two spaces. One spacers are winning in the office, though. Yeah, I think we're finally winning. It's we like winning. it's like olives. We're losing olives. Yeah, like olives. I don't know if this is a term that people that know typography just roll their eyes at or not. Sartalics. So it's a term that I've heard on the interwebs for trying to solve the fact that when we communicate digitally. You can't tell when somebody is being sarcastic or not. And so if there was just a typeface that we could use, and people came up with this idea of it being called sartalics, it would be, it'd be like italics but sloped the other way. And that you could use that to be like, don't worry, this is sarcastic, so that you would avoid miscommunications mm -hmm. for wow. saying things that people didn't realize that you were just kidding. It was just sarcastic. 
is there is that a thing that it, that exists in the real world of people designing typefaces or is that just a I'm just sure there are reverse italics. I love the idea of creating something with a new aesthetic like that. If you were to create a backward slant, it would go against the left to right reading motion that we work so hard to create through serifs and through forward movement to aid reading. It's something that's done in comic books. I read comic books for a little bit into my adult life. Still reading. Uh, yeah, right now <laughs> I'm reading. I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> There's a copy of Deadpool under my seat. No, but that's something that they do a lot, actually, when they have like a creepy character or an angry character or like a character who's thinking in someone's mind or something like that. They will change the typeface to be something much, much different and they'll stay with that for that character or that feeling. Or maybe it's just creating an using a new typeface in the middle of a sentence to show that sarcasm somehow through a different font. Right. <laughs> so the, the question that I was going to ask, which is some, sometimes a question we ask uh, towards the end of shows for our creative guests, is if you had a, a dream project, a passion project, that if you had all the time and all the money and all the scope in the world and you could do anything, what is the thing you would do? What's like the typeface you create, where would it go? What would it be for? This might be so boring, but I just want to finish that second typeface I started and I haven't <laughs> been able to finish. <laughs> but if I could do, because it contains all the characteristics that I love in, in typefaces and it has like this beautiful drama to the curves and it's super challenging and it's still really, you know, just beautiful because it's high contrast, the thin strokes to the thick strokes. But if I were to re release that typeface as a display font, meaning, you know, not tiny text font, then I would go beyond that and, and alter it a little bit to make it a very legible text font, which takes a lot more time to do. Awesome. Thank you so much for making the time to sit down and chat with us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank I, you so much. I love your show. And thank you everybody for bearing with us. There was a, a party, actually an art walk opening going on in our office while we were recording, which is great because it gives me the opportunity to mention that we nearly always participate in the Capitol Hill Art Walk. So any art walk that you see, you can stop by Born and Vellum and come see what artists we're featuring in the front. And on top of that, our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our website for that. It'll be held here on Board and Bellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Also, head over to our website and check out our blog. There's always super cool stuff being posted there every day. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.